the truth is, I just want to, uh, to remind ourselves that Muhammad Fatih only existed because of his connection with the Prophet If there was no Messenger of Allah there would have been no Muhammad Al-Fatih as we know him. It reminds me the hadith of the Prophet one day he was speaking, walking with Umar ibn Khattab anhu. And Umar anhu said, O Messenger of Allah, you are more beloved to me than everything else besides that which is between these two sides. Meaning, you are more beloved to me than anything else besides myself. Only thing which is more beloved to me, you are more beloved to me than everything else besides myself. So the Messenger of Allah said to him, he said, O oh Umar, none of you can be a true believer until I am more beloved to him than everything else, even himself. So Umar began to think. And after a while, Umar said, O Messenger of Allah, you are more beloved to me than even myself. The ulama say, how did Umar have a change of heart عنه, so quickly? They say because Umar عنه, began to think that without the message of Allah, Umar is nothing. Without the message of Allah, for Umar there is no Iman, there is no Islam, there is no Jannah, there is nothing. And this is why Without the message of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, there would be no Salatul Isha today. There would be no me and you today. And this is why we are indebted. So this is why I want to go right to the back, 1400 years ago, to speak about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and how amazing personality that the message of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was. Imagine this, imagine you live in a rural area in the desert, far away from the superpowers of the day. Actually, the superpowers of the day don't even believe that you're worth ruling. That's how backwards they think that you are. And then you bring forth a way of life which is held for 1400 years by billions of people with their lives and souls. Imagine, you're away from the intellectual hubs of the time. You're ummi, you're unlettered, you can't read and you cannot write. But, with pinpoint accuracy, you bring forth the story of Fir'aun, Qarun, Luqman, of nations which have disappeared from the face of this earth individuals 
like Adam, Idris, Nuh, Yusuf, Ibrahim, Yaqub, Musa, Isa, alayhim salatu wasalam. Imagine how the Sahaba must have felt. A day before the battle of Badr, the message of Allah said to the Sahaba, this is the place where so-and-so leader of the Mushrikeen will fall. This is the so-and-so place where another leader will fall. This is a place where another leader will fall. Exactly where the message of Allah sallallahu said, the Sahaba say, exactly where the message of Allah said is exactly where we saw them fall the next day. Imagine, you're by yourself. You have no real support. You're weak. And it's time for Hajj and the Mushrikeen would come and do Hajj. And the message of Allah would go from tent to tent in Mina. Saying, Kulu la ilaha illallah Say, la ilaha illallah. And you will be successful. And there was one man before he embraced Islam. He said, I was watching this. And I was watching this man go from tent to tent to tent. And there was a man following him wherever he went. And he would say, don't listen to this man, for he's a liar. For he's a majnoon, he's a madman. And he would take up the dust and he would throw it in his face. And the Prophet ﷺ would enter tent after tent and he would say, Qulu la ilaha illallah tuflihu. Say, la ilaha illallah and you will be successful. And the man says, I asked somebody, who are these two men? And the man replied, he said, you know that man going from tent to tent, calling people to Allah. He's a man called Muhammad who regards himself as a prophet. And you know that man behind him with the dust in his hand. He's his uncle Abu Lahab. And the narrations mention that when the message of Allah وسلم, would go into the tent, some people would say to him, why are we going to listen to you for? For your own people don't believe in your message. Others would say to him, if we believe in your religion, it's just going to be a headache. We're going to have to start wars with other individuals. Narrations mention some would insult him. Some would take dust and they would throw it in his face. Some would spit in his face, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But nothing stopped him from tent to tent, to tent he would go. Until right at the end of the day, the narrations mention his daughter Zainab radiallahu anha, who was still a young girl at the time, bore him some water. And she gives him the water and the message of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is washing his hands. And he's washing the spit of his face. And he looks up and he sees the anxious look on his daughter's face. Seeing her father being spat at, seeing her father being insulted, she looks worried. And the Messenger of Allah looked and he saw the look on her face. And the Messenger of Allah sallallahu said, Oh my daughter, don't regard this as humiliation. For I swear by Allah, a day will come that this deen will reach the home of every baked and unbaked home. And we bear witness to the statement of the Prophet wasallam, which he said 1400 years ago. Darkest moment of the Muslims in the history 
the entirety of the enemies gather against the Muslims and they march upon Medina. 11,000, the Jews, the Mushrikeen, everybody who hated the Muslims, they march on Medina. The Muslims are 3,000, 1,000 out of those 3,000 are Munafiqeen. Abu Sufyan is saying this is the final battle. After this, the Muslim will never stand. Game over after today. There's only two ways that you can enter Medina, either the front or the back. And the back was covered by the Bani Quraiza, the Jews who had a treaty with the Muslims. The sides is covered with lavas. So the Mushrikeen are walking, coming, marching towards Medina. And Salman al-Farsi, Salman the Persian, he goes to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu and he says, the Messenger of Allah, we the Persians, when we have an army that we can't deal with, is too large, what we do is that we dig trenches. So let's dig a trench. So the Messenger of Allah sallallahu commands the Sahaba radiallahu anhu to dig a trench. So they begin to dig this trench. It's midwinter. There's a famine going on. The Sahaba come to the Messenger of Allah and they say, Messenger of Allah, we're hungry. We haven't eaten anything for three days. And they remove their garment from their stomach and they have a stone tied to their stomach. And the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam removes his garment from his stomach. And he has two stones tied to his blessed stomach. And then they come past this large boulder. Large rock, they can't break it. So they come to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi and they say, oh, Messenger of Allah, there is this rock, we can't break it. Come and help us. The Messenger of Allah is over 50 years old at this time. Carrying those two stones on his stomach, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he goes to the trench, he takes the pickaxe and he strikes it. And there's a huge spark and he says, Allah Akbar. And a third of it breaks. And then he strikes it a second time and there's a huge spark and another third breaks. And then he strikes it the third time and it breaks into small pieces. The Sahaba said, O Messenger of Allah, what was that spark about? What was the Allah Akbar about? The Prophet said, when I struck it the first time, Allah showed me through the spark that a day will come that we will take the palaces of Yemen. Yemen was south. When I struck it the second time, Allah showed me that a day would come that we would take the palaces of Sham, the palaces of the Byzantines. Remember the word Byzantines. And when I struck it the third time, Allah showed me a day would come that we would take the white palace of the superpower of the day, the Persians, which was in Madain. The Munafiqeen, the hypocrites said, look at this guy. He's promising them that they will become a superpower. And one of us is scared to go to toilet outside. La ilaha illallah. Within approximately 10 years, the Muslims became that superpower that the Messenger of Allah predicted. And history, wallahi, is a testimony to this. History is a testimony that what the Messenger of Allah prophesied passed, happened. And let me tell you about another prophecy of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam while he was sitting in Medina. He said, لَتُفْتَحَنَّ الْقُسْطُنْتَنِيَّةِ فَلَنِعْمَ الْأَمِيرْ أَمِيرُهَا وَنِعْمَ الْجَيْشِ ذَلِكَ الْجَيْشِ He said, you will surely 
conquer Constantinople. Today, Istanbul, its Amir will be the best of Amirs. And its army will be the best of armies. 100 years go past, nothing happens. 200 years, 500 years, 600 years, 700 years, 800 years later, what the message of Allah said happened. 800 years later. And every single person wanted to be the conqueror of this. Because they wanted to be that prophecy of the message of Allah sallallahu But the man who really brought this to life, brought the dream of the message of Allah to life, was one of the most disparaged sahaba, Muawiyah radiallahu anhu. Muawiyah brought the dream of the message of Allah to life. What was the dream? One day, the message of Allah was in the house of Umm Haram. And he goes to sleep. And after a very long time, he wakes up and he's smiling. And Umm Haram radiallahu anha asked him, a message of Allah, what's making you smile? May my mother and my father be sacrificed for you. He said, I saw a dream. And in this dream, I saw people from my ummah. And they're riding on these large ships like kings sitting on big thrones. She said, oh, Messenger of Allah, make dua, I'm from amongst them. The Messenger of Allah said, you will be from amongst them. Then he goes to sleep. He wakes up a while later and he's smiling. And she said, may my mother, my father be sacrificed for your Messenger of Allah. Why are you smiling? He said, I saw a dream that my ummah is going for jihad and they're sitting on these ships like kings on thrones. She said, oh, Messenger of Allah, make dua, I'm from amongst them. The Messenger of Allah said, you will be from the former. The Messenger of Allah passes away. Abu Bakr's time, nothing happens. Umar's time, nothing happens. Uthman's time, Muawiyah convinces him to send a navy to Cyprus. Look at this Cyprus. So the first navy goes to Cyprus. On this navy is Umm Haram. She's on the ship. They reach Cyprus, they conquer Cyprus. Umm Haram, radiallahu anha, is riding a horse. The horse is startled. She falls off the horse. And she passes away until today. The grave of Umm Haram in Cyprus is a proof on the prophecy of the Messenger of Allah. And then comes the time of Muawiyah himself. So today, now Muawiyah is a Mirul Mu'mineen. And then he prepares another army. And this army is going to go to Constantinople. And everybody wants to be a part of this army. Why? Because you are guaranteed one of two prophecies. Possibly one, but one is guaranteed. What's the one? One is that the possibility if you conquer it, you will be the best army. But the second is as related by Ma Muslim in the Sahih. The Messenger of Allah said, That the first army from my ummah, which attacks the city of the Caesar, which meant Constantinople, Allah will forgive them. So everybody wanted to be in this army. The Sahaba, many of them were old now, but you had Abdullah ibn Zubair, Abdullah ibn Abbas, Abdullah ibn Umar anhum, all in this army. But you know the name that really stands out? 
is Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu For those who don't know who Abu Ayyub was, Abu Ayyub radiallahu was the host of the message of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam when he came to Medina. When the message of Allah came to Medina, everybody wanted the message of Allah to stay with them. You know, like your favorite celebrity or your favorite sheikh or Molana comes to Glasgow and you want everybody. You say, oh, I wish this guy stayed at my house. I wish he ate at my house. Can you imagine the message of Allah is coming to Medina and everybody's pulling the reins and the message of Allah said, let the reins of the animal go. For this camel is commanded by Allah. Wherever Allah commands it, that's where it would stop. It goes and it stops outside the house of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari. Abu Ayyub takes the message of Allah home. Abu Ayyub had two stories. Abu Ayyub stayed upstairs and the message of Allah stayed downstairs. So one day Abu Ayyub comes to the message of Allah and he says, Oh, message of Allah, I can't stay upstairs. So the message of Allah said, why? He said, because if I stay upstairs, I walk over your head. And I regard it as disrespectful. So the Prophet said, Abu Ayyub, I am a person who many people come to visit. If I stay upstairs, people will have to go past your family and inconvenience your family. Abu Ayyub comes back later and he says, still on message of Allah, I can't bear walking over your head. So this army is prepared to go to Constantinople. Abu Ayyub al-Ansari is over 80 years old. The Sahaba said, and the others said, Abu Ayyub, you're an old man. You know, you don't have planes. There's no PIA, there's not even PIA that flies there. There's nothing that flies there. Where you go, how are you going to go? Old man, over 80 years old, you're going to travel all the way from Medina on a mount all the way to Constantinople, to Turkey. He said, I will still go. They said, why? He said, because the verse in the Quran, infiru khifafun wa thiqalan, won't allow me to sit at home. The verse in the Quran, go in the path of your Lord. May you be heavy or may you be light. May you be young or may you be old. Won't allow me to sit at home. So over 80 years old, radiallahu anhu, travels. They reach Constantinople. When they reach Constantinople, they lay siege to Constantinople. Abu Yub falls ill, radiallahu anhu. He withdraws from the fighting. There's an ikhtalaf. I don't want to go into who was the emir of the army. So the Amir of the army goes to Abu Ayyub and he says, Sheikh, what can I do for you? He said, give my salam to the army and tell them that they must fight with vigor and they must fight with zeal. And when I die, make sure you bury me in the furthest part of the enemy land so I can tell Allah, oh Allah, whilst I was living, I advanced in your path. And even whilst I was dead, I advanced in your path. So Abu Ayyub passes away. So the furthest they can go is the wall of Constantinople. So they take his body to the wall of Constantinople. Caesar's watching this. 
So he sends a message to the general and he says to the general, what's going on? And he says that this is a companion of the Messenger of Allah and he wanted to be buried here. So the general says to him, obviously you're not very intelligent because when he, because when you go back, I will exhume his body and I will feed it to the dogs. So the Muslim general sends him a message. He said, I swear by the one that you disbelieve in and I swear by the one due to whom he is buried here. If you do that, then we will destroy every Byzantine church in our lands and we will kill every Byzantinian in our lands. It had such an impact on Caesar that Caesar actually put guards by the grave of Abu Yubal Ansari. Not only this, you know, Christian historians mention, not Muslim, Christian historians mention that when the Christians would have a drought, the Christians would go to the grave of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari and they would make dua. I say, subhanAllah, the first darbar in the history of Islam was made by Christians. The first one. So this, so now let me move on to Constantinople. What is Constantinople? Today, Constantinople is Istanbul. It was originally called Islambul, like Islamabad, the city of Islam. Then it was changed into Istanbul. Napoleon said, if the world was one country, its capital would have been Istanbul. Why? Because it bridges east and west. For a thousand years, the most beautiful city in the entirety of Christianity was Constantinople. In 1558, when Queen Elizabeth I sent an organ to Muhammad III, Sultan Muhammad III, Thomas Dallam, for those whose geography is not too good, and I know you guys don't like anything south anyway, now we have Queen Elizabeth II. Yeah, she's not 500 years old, but you know, because the... You guys don't make the dua, but the guys south always saying, God save our queen. She might just hit 500 years old, you know, no possibility. So Queen Elizabeth I sent an organ with Thomas Dallam and he says, where did he go from? He didn't go from Glasgow or Birmingham. He went from London. He said, when I entered Constantinople, he said, it was a different world. I had never seen anything like it in my life. So beautiful. In, in pureness, amongst the Christians, it was known as Jerusalem the second. As far as defenses are concerned, it was regarded as impregnable. Just from 1123 to 1453, which was the year that Muhammad Fateh lay siege to it, it had been sieged 23 times. The Muslims had sieged it 11 times because they all wanted to be that man where the Prophet ﷺ said would be the best of leaders and the best of army. It had, it had 12 miles of wall around it. Out of those 12 miles, Eight miles was sea, so only four miles would land, and it had the most, they say, the most strongest walls in the world. Impregnable. 
Before I speak about Muhammad al-Fatih, which group of people did Muhammad al-Fatih come from? When the Mongols attacked East Turkestan, approximately half a million people from Turkestan moved west. These people were homeless. Not a penny to their name. Nothing. But a group from amongst them, a group from amongst them stamped their name on history. And these were the people that Muhammad al-Fatih rahimahullah came from. And this is amazing. These people had nothing to their names. Nothing to their names. I know you, you guys now today, mashallah, you know uh, only one name. And whatever version of the name you want to give it, I mean, there's so many pronunciations, Ortagal, etc., etc. And it's amazing, you know, how things have changed. You know, 10 years ago, if you came to a masjid and you asked anybody, do you watch TV? They would say, no, 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 TV. I don't have TV at home. Now, subhanAllah, the masjids are full with the barak of the TV. Four seasons, or is it fifth, five seasons, huh? Molana, five seasons? Oh, you don't watch, obviously. Five seasons on a guy, Urtagal, rahimahullah, may Allah elevate his status, where they say there's about seven pages written on him. Seven pages written on him, on his life. But there's one thing, there's two things I really want to point out here. One, alhamdulillah, if you get inspired by alhamdulillah, tayyib, if it brings you closer to Allah, alhamdulillah. But that shouldn't be the only thing. You know, if that is the only thing which inspires you, then, then you know, you, you need to move on. Yeah, you need to be inspired by the Sahaba and the message of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. On the other hand, I also want those who are the Imams and the Sheikhs to understand how things have changed in the last 10 years. Social media changed everything. Fashion designer, hijabi designers have more impact than any Molvi does in the entire country. That's a reality. And if you don't know what's happening with your youth, then there's a serious problem. How people are being influenced. So Urtagal, brief Urtagal. What was the background of Urtagal? Urtagal was a man who was looking for some space for his people. He saw two armies fighting. One were the Seljuks who were also Turkish origin. And one were the enemies. So he sided with the Seljuks who were actually being defeated. They were so impressed by his ability that the Sultan, he annexed a part of his land and he gave it to Muhammad, uh, he gave it to Urtagal. In every single battle, Urtagal would always be at the forefront because they regarded him as a military genius. He was a military genius, but he was not from the Ottomans because the Ottomans did not exist. The Ottomans started with his son, Usman, who was born when? 1258. And this is really interesting. Why? Because this 1258 was the darkest moment in the history of Islam. The Mongols had destroyed the Khwarezm dynasty. They had nothing in the Muslim world has been as, as savage as the Mongol invasion. It decimated the Muslim world. They destroyed the Khwarezm kingdom. Then they went for to Baghdad, 
1258, they reached Baghdad. The population of Baghdad was approximately 2 million individuals. That's the size of Birmingham. Half of the population of Baghdad was killed. How did they kill them? They didn't have machine guns. They didn't have bombs. You know, like you have chickens in a poultry farm. They would make them wait their turns. Sometimes their turn would take days to come. But they knew their turn was coming. And this is how they killed half a million. Nothing in the history of Islam has been as devastating as the Mongol invasion. And 1258 was when Baghdad, the capital of the Abbasid, the capital of the Muslim world fell. 1258 was the year that Urtagal had a son called Usman. Gee, in the darkest moment of Islam, of Islamic history, Usman was born. In 12, when all the other people, when all the other dynasties who protected Islam, the Ayyubites, the Mamluks, the Abbasids, the Khwarzim, the Muwahidun, the Murabitun, all of them fell by the wayside. For 600 years, there was only one group of people who defended this Ummah, and that was the Ottomans. You know the Ottomans? You look at Turkey today, you know the Ottomans? The longest empire in the history of Islam are the Ottomans. From 1280, from 1280, to 1924, it was only really the Ottomans. You know what they ruled? Let me tell you what they ruled. They ruled almost all the way, North Africa from Egypt, all the way to Morocco, close to Morocco. They ruled Syria, they ruled Sham. You know what Sham was at that time? Sham was Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, Syria. They ruled Turkey. They ruled the entirety of the Hejaz. They ruled big swathes of Eastern Europe. All three harams were under the Ottoman. All three of the harams. This is what the Ottomans were. The longest empire in the history of Islam were the Ottomans. And that's where Muhammad al-Fatih came from. Muhammad al-Fatih was the eighth in line of the Ottoman Sultan. His father was Murad Athani, Murad II. He himself lay siege to Constantinople for 22 days. Now, Muhammad, Murad Athani was always very concerned about the tarbiyah of his son, Muhammad al-Fatih. You know, wallahi, I'm telling you seriously, and take this, it's very important. Every single great leader I, I have ever studied, Ever, Nuruddin, Salahuddin, Umar ibn Abdulaziz, Yusuf bin Tashfin, anyone. One quality you will always see is that their parents were concerned about the tarbiyah of their children. Their parents were concerned. They worked on their children. They spent time with their children. They invested in their children. And sometimes you see a lack of this today. That concern, that investment. You know, this is the Sultan. They say Muhammad al-Fatih, every time they would send him a teacher, he wouldn't listen to the teacher. So Murad gathered his ministers and he said, find me a man who can sort my child out. He said, son of the Sultan, 
Nowadays, you can't control the Maulvi or the Peel son. This is the son of the Sultan. So they found him a man called Imam Qawrani. Now you will think Imam Qawrani is just a teacher. No, Imam Qawrani was a Kurdish sheikh who was known as the Imam Abu Hanif of his time. He wrote commentaries on Bukhari. So he came and he was old style. So he came and he said, my wife, my, your father has sent me to teach you. Muhammad al-Fatih spoiled Sultan Sal laughed in his face. He was old style. He took out the stick and gave him a good beating. They say Muhammad al-Fatih could barely read before this. By the age of eight, the son of the Sultan became a Hafid of the Quran. Today, you know, at the age of seven, somebody becomes a Hafid, they send messages out. Age of seven, this is the son of the Sultan. Not only that, Muhammad al-Fatih could speak eight languages. Eight languages. The ones I remember are Arabic, are Persian, are Turkish, are Serbian, Italian, Greek. And there's two others. He was a historian. This was the man who instilled in him the love of reading. Then his other sheikh, when he grew up slightly, was a man called Aq Shamsuddin. This was the man who really had a great impact on him. He was a sheikh. He did his tarbiyah. He was the one who instilled in him the belief that he could take Constantinople. See, by that time, when Urtugal was given that little land, expanded, expanded, the Ottoman expanded. Hundreds of years had lapsed. And now they had reached right to the end and across the river was Constantinople. So Aq Shamsuddin, one day, he went to the shore and he took Muhammad al-Fatih, who was a young boy at the time, and he took his horse into the water. And, he said, and until the water reached the neck of the horse, and then he said, Muhammad, you bring your horse in. And when the water reached the neck, he said to Muhammad al-Fatih, he said, oh my son, you see that? That is Constantinople. The message of Allah said, the commander who will take this will be the best of commanders. And I anticipate that person will be you. The ulama write something really amazing here. They say, look at one positive teacher. One positive teacher changed the landscape of history. One person who believed in his student. And we need to be investing and believing in our children. In our students. That tomorrow they can be the Muhammad al-Fatihs. That they can be something amazing. So that was one thing. The second and I know you're going to think, yeah, the Maulvi just playing himself up. No, the second quality I've seen in every single great Islamic personality is that they loved knowledge and they loved scholars. Every single one of them. You know how much Muhammad al-Fatih respected scholars? Let me tell you. you. You study every single one. I guarantee you, every single one. They loved ilm and they loved the scholars. Muhammad Fatih, one of the people who worked for him, a young man, wanted a fatwa from a qadi. The qadi gave it judgment. He didn't like it judgment. And because he worked for the sultan, he beat the qadi up. Muhammad al-Fatih, rahimahullah, found out. Muhammad al-Fatih said that this young man should be killed, executed. The ulama said, why? 
You can't execute a guy for just beating a Qadi up. Give him some other punishment. He said, no. He said, when the Qadi gave his judgment and he did not like the judgment, although the judgment was on the Sharia, and he beat him up, therefore indirectly he undermined the Sharia. He disliked the Sharia, therefore he should be killed. Eventually they convinced him that you can't do this. So this young man came to Muhammad al-Fatih. And brothers, listen to this. Listen to this very carefully. You know, there are some, some groups of people that every single joke is on Maulvi's. Seriously. You know the people I'm talking about, the group of people. You might have a laugh and you might have a joke, but what you are instilling in your children is the disdain for those people who represent the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The impact you are having, you don't understand the indirect impact that you are having. You don't crack jokes about doctors. You know why? Because you respect doctors. But you crack jokes, you're every other joke. Now when I was going, I'm, not how, I'm sure Scotland is similar. We grew up, and the jokes were on paddies. You guys, you have jokes on paddies up here? Or do you just laugh on the England guys? Uh, so when the first time, honestly, the first time you meet an intelligent paddy, he breaks all your stereotypes that you've had from childhood. And this is exactly what happens. And let me, let me be, hundred. let me, can I be blunt? Will you get offended if I'm blunt? Good, I don't care if you get offended. Uh, listen, before you say, oh, this guy, this guy is coming and insulting us Pakistanis, I'm Pakistani myself, yeah? So I'm not a self-hating Pakistani, yeah? This is the problem. More than any, more than the uh, Indians, more than the Bengalis, it's with the Pakistanis. Your every joke is on the Maulvis. And more so, let me, let me rebate it because I'm Punjabi as well, especially with the Punjabis, and especially with the Lauriers and the Flesh and the Badis, the middle class. You, you, you'd treat everybody, you, look, I am not here to defend Maulvis, and nor do you put food on my plate, it's not, I don't care. I'm going to be gone, but I'm telling you for the future of your children, crack jokes about other things. Because when you every joke, Molvi did this and Molvi did that and Molvi was every joke, then what you are instilling in your children is the dislike for those who represent the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And tomorrow, when your children become disobedient or they turn away from the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or they put you in an old people's home, you have nobody to blame besides yourself. You have nobody to blame besides yourself. You know, when you go to certain communities, like the Gujarati communities, you know, they will bring their children up to shake your hand after the talk. And I don't need you to shake my hand, Zakallah Khairan. But I'm saying it, and they say, Molana, make a dua for my child. The child now instilled in his mind that this person represents the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I'll respect him. And when, on the other hand, when your every other joke is on the Molvi, then you will generally, I mean, our own, our own our, my own generation is a casualty of this. It's a casualty of this. So respect. Not every Malvi is perfect. But just for the benefit of your own child. Just for the benefit of your own child, do it. Respect 
the people of knowledge, no matter what background they come from, no matter what group they come from, make sure that your children love that person because he recites La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. And every single, wallah, every single leader I have ever studied, they had his quality. So this young man comes to Muhammad al-Fatih to apologize, and Muhammad al-Fatih gives him a good beating. Muhammad al-Fatih was a warrior. Later on, this young man becomes a Qadi. And he would say, I became a Qadi because of the barakah of the beating of Muhammad al-Fatih. You know, that as we're on the issue of beating, let's carry on. You know, one day Muhammad al-Fatih, he's, he's a young boy, he's walking with Aq Shamsuddin, his teacher, Sheikh. He loved the Sheikh. He said, nobody was in as awe as Aq Shamsuddin. His Sheikh just beats him for no reason. Gives him a good beating. So later on, Muhammad al-Fatih, a while later, he came to his Sheikh and he said, Sheikh, I want to ask you a question. Why did you beat me that day? I want to really know, why did you beat me that day? I didn't do anything wrong. He said, my son, I'm happy you asked me. I'll tell you why I beat you. He said, tomorrow you are going to be the Sultan. And I wanted you to know what oppression feels like. So when you oppress anybody else, you know what it feels like to be oppressed. She was doing his tarbiyah. You can never understand what a poor person is going through if you've never experienced poverty. You can never know what, what that person who had just lost his child or lost his parents if you've never experienced it yourself. So, so this was a tarbiyah from his teacher. What about his father? At the age of 14, young man, how old are you? Nine. How old are you, young man? Fourteen. Exactly. Fourteen years old. You see this young boy here? Good looking young man here. Yeah. Fourteen years old, mashallah. Fourteen years old. Muhammad al-Fatih is fourteen years old. And his father annexes a piece of land and he says, you're the sultan. So the Christians say, oh, ideal opportunity. Fourteen years old. So they prepare an army. Now Muhammad al-Fatih is fourteen years old. So he sends a letter to his father and he said, look, my father, you know, they're preparing army, I need your help. He said, no, you the sultan, you deal with it. So Muhammad Fatih was very intelligent. He said, listen, either you, if it's your land, you come and defend it. And if I am the sultan, then I am commanding you to come and defend it. So his father comes, he comes and he defends the land. At the age of 21, his father passes away, Murad al-Thani. Many times Muhammad al-Fatih had heard his father making dua, La ilaha illallah, and beautiful, wallah, these are sultans. Sultans, look at what can sultan. Every Ottoman early sultan was known as Ghazi. You know what Ghazi means? Mujahid. Muhammad al-Fatih had heard his father sitting on the musalla making dua, that, oh Allah, make my son the conqueror Constantinople. And the message of Allah said that between the dua of a parent and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there is no hijab. There is no hijab. It goes straight up. Allah hears it directly. So 21 years old, his father passes away. Europe is elated. The biggest thorn in their side 
Murad Thani is dead. Francesco wrote a letter to all the, all the leaders, the Christian leaders, and said, glad tidings. Murad is dead and his successor is inexperienced, simple-minded individual. La ilaha illallah. Look at that. The man who conquered Constantinople the day that he came on the throne, they were happy. As Allah says, Makaru wa makar Allah, wallahu khairul makirin. They plan and they plot, and Allah plans, and Allah is the best of planners. Can you imagine? They're happy that he's become the Sultan. Historically, I don't want to bore you guys, but can I go in slightly depth about history? Yeah, because a lot of kids here, but historically, not only did he take Constantinople, you know the Byzantine Kingdom was the longest empire in the history of Christianity. It ruled for over a thousand years. You know when Allah says in the Quran, Alif Lamim, Rum, Alif Lamim, the Romans have been defeated. Yeah? It's not Romans, these are Byzantines. And you'll understand, I'll explain it later on. What the different Byzantines. But these were the Byzantines. The Byzantines in the Prophet time ruled all the way from Constantinople, swathes of Eastern Europe, all the way up to Syria. That's where they ruled. And then Khalid bin Walid radiallahu defeated them in the battle of Yarmouk. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, the Byzantines have been defeated. He's speaking about these people. And then Allah says, soon they will defeat the Persians. And that day, يَوْمَ إِذِنْ يَحْفْرَهُ الْمُؤْمِنُونَ بِنَسْرِ اللَّهِ And when the Byzantines defeat the Persians, the Muslims will be happy. Why? See, when the Romans were defeated, or the Persian, Byzantines were defeated, they were the people of the book. And the people who beat them were the Persians who worshipped fire. So the Mushrikeen in Makkah were happy. They said, look, those who worship fire have defeated your brothers who are people of the book. So Allah says, no, a day will come that they will defeat them and that happened. But the interesting, the really interesting thing is the man who bought the longest empire in the history of Christianity, the man who the Quran speaks about, Alif Lamim Rum, was Muhammad Al-Fatih. The man that when he came on the throne, they were happy. So Muhammad Al-Fatih, yeah, he, his father's passed away. They say he was sitting by his father's bed. His mother came to him and she said, Oh my son, get up, we have things to do. Mother, who just lost her husband, said, Get up, oh my son, we have things to do. So now Muhammad al-Fatih, 21 years old at the time, prepares for the conquest of Constantinople. You know, they say the preparation was meticulous. He went to a Christian man called Urban, who was a Hungarian Christian. He, but he was an expert in making cannons. So he said to Urban, he said, Urban, make me a cannon like no cannon before. Urban said, I will make you a cannon which will destroy the walls of Babylon. So he made him a cannon which could fire a ball for an entire mile, 1500 kg. The, the, the barrel of the cannon was so large that a man could crawl inside it. It needed 60 oxes to pull it and 200 men on both sides. 
He made treaties with those people he needed to. And then you had the Bosphorus. Anybody been to Turkey? Yeah, you have the Bosphorus. Already on one side of the Bosphorus, there was a fort which his grandfather made. So what he did is on the other side of the Bosphorus, about 660 meters on the other side, he made another fort. He placed cannons on both sides. So nobody could come to Constantinople without passing this fort. But the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing is, you know what, Muhammad al-Fatih made this with his own hands. He worked himself. He made the, all the princes work himself. He made the ulama work. Why? Because Muhammad al-Fatih was a historian. He had seen in the history, he had seen in the life of the Prophet wasallam that the Messenger of Allah, when they made the Masjid Nabi wasallam, the Prophet wasallam would carry the bricks himself. Listen to this, brothers. The greatest of creation who carry the bricks himself. The narration mentioned that his back would bend like this when he was carrying the bricks. The Sahaba would say, O Messenger of Allah, let us carry the bricks. The Prophet would say, there's the bricks, you carry the other bricks. He had so much dust whilst carrying the bricks, all his front was covered. This is the Messenger of Allah, the greatest of creation, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This is the Sultan. For three months, he worked with his own hands. Ya Habib, brothers, you need to do this. Wallahi. You know, we, we have lost the soul of doing work with our hands, humbling ourselves. Our fathers would do it. First generation would do it. No, you and I, me, I got, I'm a CEO. I got a job. I'm, you know, I've studied in university. I'll give a bit of chanda to the masjid. That's about it. No. Get your hands dirty in your communities. If the greatest of creation, sallallahu alayhi wa sahaba were who? Sahaba were those when the Messenger of Allah did his wudu, they would take the wudu and they would anoint their faces with it. You think when he carried the bricks, did it hurt him? Hurt them? No, but the Messenger of Allah is showing you, you and I. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. You've all heard of the footballer Mane. Liverpool footballer earns millions, hundreds and thousands each week. The man's cleaning a toilet. Cleaning a toilet in Liverpool. You see, have you seen the videos? Look at this, subhanAllah. Millions of people would love to be in his shoes with his popularity. But you look at that. The khidmah of the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'll tell you why it's important. Because it creates humbleness in a person. That work with your hands, serving other people, creates humbleness. In the time of the Prophet wasallam, there was this African lady, she used to clean the masjid. Clean the masjid. And then she disappeared for days. The Prophet wasallam said, where's that lady? I haven't seen her who cleans the masjid. She said, oh, Messenger of Allah, she passed away and we buried her. And the Messenger of Allah said, why didn't you tell me? They said, oh, Messenger of Allah, she passed away. We buried her. What they were really saying is that, oh, Messenger of Allah, she wasn't from the Muhajirun or the Ansar. She was an ex-slave. She wasn't from the Badris or the people of Uhud. She wasn't a person of real status. That's why we didn't tell you. And wallahi, you know, I was in Masjid Nabi and I was standing there and I was envisaging this. And I was envisaging that the Prophet ﷺ, when they said to him, he stood up 
and he walked to Jannatul Baqi and he stood on her grave and he prayed Janazah on her grave. There is no even mention what the name of this woman was. But for nobody else, for nobody else besides this woman did the Prophet ﷺ pray Janazah on her grave. Khidmah of the masjid. Just khidmah sweeping the masjid. So this is what Muhammad al-Fatih rahimahullah did. Eventually Muhammad al-Fatih now he's ready to bring, uh, to, to bring the army. So he, he, now he brings the army, the army is 150,000 strong. They place cannons. Can you imagine now? They have these large cannons, they place it on the other side. And then Muhammad al-Fatih looks at the cannons and he looks at his army and he says something amazing. He's got an army of 150,000 and he says, I will conquer Constantinople, not with the army, not with the 150,000, but because I have the word of truth. And then Muhammad al-Fatih gives the command and the, and the cannon is fired. It pulverizes the wall. You could hear it 13 miles away. One of the Muslim historians says, he said, when it hit the wall and the noise it made, he said, by Allah, I thought Israfil had blown the trumpet. Israfil had blown the trumpet. But they say even worse than this was when the Muslim would say the takbir, the Allah Akbar. It would create a shudder down your spine. And then the Muslims now began to scale the walls. So now you had these huge walls. So they would try to scale the walls. So what the Christians would do is that they would pour oil, water. They would shoot them with arrows. So Leonardo is a Christian historian. He was there. He said the bravery of the Turks were amazing. He said sometimes they would come close to the wall and we would kill, end up killing all of them. But he said when we would shoot one dead, and the, I'm paraphrasing his words, so when we would shoot one dead, another one would come out and he would pick his comrade and he would hoist him over his shoulder like you throw a pig over your shoulder. And then he would run with him. And he said that they would create a shooting gallery for us. So we would shoot the other one and they would both fall down dead. He said then another one would come and another one would come. He said sometimes just to take one comrade, there 10 of them would be shot down dead. But the Turks could not live with the shame that they could not, that they could not bury, bury one of their comrades. They couldn't live with the sh uh, this shame. You know, they had to bury the, their comrades. They say that Muhammad al-Fatih, uh, uh, one of the, 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 the French historians, he mentions, he explains how he found the... Turkish soldier. So in 1430, 1453 was when Muhammad al-Fatih lay siege. 1430, he says, he's a French traveler, his name was Bretardon. He says, when I met the Turkish army, this is what they were like. So they were diligent, willingly rise early and live on little. They are indifferent to where they sleep and usually lie on the ground. Their horses are good, cost little in food, gallop well and for a long time. Their obedience to their superiors is boundless. When a s signal is given, those who are led march quietly off. 
followed by others in the same silence. 10,000 Turks on such an occasion will make less noise than 100 Christian men. I must own that in my various experiences, I have always found the Turks to be frank and loyal. And when it was necessary to show courage, they have never failed to do so. You know, they say about Muhammad al-Fatih, that he went to a marketplace and he was like disguised. And he bought something from the marketplace. So when he bought this thing from the market owner, the market owner said, I have enough to feed my children today, go to the next person. For I've seen nobody come to his stall. So he goes to the next stall. He buys something. He says, I have enough to feed my children today. That market stall, I've seen that nobody has come to them. So he goes to that person. They say that Muhammad al-Fatih on that occasion said, I believe today I have that army which the message of Allah spoke about. It's not all about strength, brothers. It's about making Allah yours. You make Allah yours, six billion cannot defeat you. And you lose the one, Allah, and you've lost everything. You know what kind of man Muhammad Fatih himself was? They said, how did Muhammad Fatih have such an army? You know what he was like? They say in the battlefield, he was always at the forefront. He would injure himself. He would take his horse in the water. Approximately 50 days they lay siege to Constantinople. When Khalil Basha, his wazir, came in, he said, By Allah, my side has not, my side has not touched the bed. They say all night he would stay up sketching, drawing. Hilmi Danishman is a Turkish historian. He says, since the day Muhammad al-Fatih became the Amir, since the day Muhammad al-Fatih became the Amir, he says that every single day he would check the maps of Constantinople. How long for? For two years, every single day Muhammad al-Fatih would check the maps. Subhanallah. Every day they say Muhammad al-Fatih would bring something new to the battlefield. So they were finding it very difficult to scale the walls. So one morning the Christians wake up and the Muslims have created a frame which is three floors high, higher than the walls. Each, each floor is covered with skin so they can't pour anything over it. And it goes back half a mile to the Muslim ranks. By the end of the day, they manage to burn it. Muhammad al-Fatih said, tomorrow we will create another fall. One of the Christian historians say, if all of Christendom had gathered, it would have taken them a month to make one of these. He said, Muhammad al-Fatih saying, tomorrow we will have another fall. What does this show us, brothers? You know what it shows us? That Muslims are meant to be dynamic people. Muslims are meant to be innovative. Muslims are meant to be at the forefront. That's what Adin shows us. You remember the dream I told you about the Prophet He had a dream about ships, about navy. This was a man who had never sat on a ship. Possibly never even seen a ship. But he was telling them that the day will come that you will have ships. Battle of Khandak. Salman al-Farisi said, let's dig a trench. He said, let's dig a trench. Then Salman on the same battle said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, we the Persians, 
What we do is that we create catapults and we put rocks on those catapults. The Messenger of Allah said, build a catapult. Salman al-Farsi on the same battle said, oh Messenger of Allah, we the Persians have the Baba. The Baba was the tank of the time. The Prophet said, build the Baba. Yar, what kind of deen me and you got? Now, wallahi, doesn't inspire us to do anything. Doesn't, doesn't inspire us to become creative. You know, what, 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 what's the reason for this? Because we have so much, so much ikhtilafat amongst us. And that's the problem. So I tell you about the ikhtilaf they had. You know, when Muhammad al-Fatih made the, the, he made the fort, Caesar sent a message to the Pope and he said, I need your help. But the problem was, at that time, Christianity was divided into two. You had Orthodox Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, their center was Constantinople. And then you had Catholic Christianity, Western Europe, their center was Rome. The problem was each one of them regarded each other as heretics. Each would put a fatwa on the other that the other one is kafir. So the Pope said, we will help you on one condition. That the entirety of orthodoxy become Christian, Catholics. So Caesar agreed. Caesar said, okay. So they went to the Sophia Hagia. You know the Sophia Hagia in, in uh, Constantinople. So they were about to sign that the entirety of Orthodox Christianity would become Catholics. The second in charge after Caesar stood up and he said, we don't accept this. And then he said something really interesting. He said, we would prefer, we would prefer the turbans of the Turks to rule us than rather than the long hats of the Catholics. So the Catholics went back. See, this is what ikhtilaf causes. What ikhtilaf causes, disunity causes, it weakens your power. All over the world, you look at the Muslim world. Let, let's go to the Middle East. Look at the blaze. Look, look at the disunity. Look at Muslims killing each other. Muslims fighting with each other. All over the world. Others kill you, you get upset. And then we decide to kill each other. Now, listen. Before you start putting fatwas on me, understand what I'm saying. Yeah? Nobody's saying compromise on your theology. Nobody's saying that compromise on your Keep your theology. We are Sunnis. But learn from history. Why do you repeat the same thing every sim? Every century. You look at last century, you did the same. The century before, you did the same. The century before, you did the same. Why don't you learn? You are, let me ask you a question. You ask any Christian today, do you agree with the statement? Do you agree with the statement? That we would rather the Muslim rulers than Christian Catholics. They will say, no, of course we don't. But when you're in the mix of it, that's what happens. So this is what happens. So Muhammad al-Fatih, now, other thing that Muhammad, so at times the situation was very desperate for Muhammad al-Fatih, very desperate. So one day he sent a message to his sheikh, he said, Sheikh, we've lost a lot of men, what do you advise? The narration mentioned the sheikh was reading the Quran, the man entered the tent. The sheikh looked at him and he said, 
tell Muhammad, man plans and Allah plans and Allah is the best of planners. Then what happens, then some ships get through and the Muslims lose more men. Now he gets even desperate and they say to Muhammad Sultan, Sultan, they say to the Sultan, they say, look, all this is because you listen to your Sheikh. It's your Sheikh's fault and it's your fault. They're telling the Sultan. So now the Sultan goes to the tent of his Sheikh, Sheikh Aq Shamsuddin. He wants to go inside the tent. The guard says, you can't go inside the tent. The Sheikh said, nobody's allowed in the tent. He's the Sultan. He moves the guard out of the way. He goes in the tent and he sees the Sheikh in sajda. His turban has fallen off. His hair are in the dust. And after a long time, he comes out of sajda. And his tears are running down his cheek into his beard. And Muhammad al-Fatih said, I came out of the tent. And he said, I swear by Allah, knowing that I have people like this in this ummah is greater for me than even conquering Constantinople. So what was the situation in like inside Constantinople at the time? Situation was very bad. To the degree that the Christians were demoralized, so they took out this picture which they believed that St. Lucas had drawn himself, painted himself. You may have seen it, it's Mary carrying Jesus and she's pointing to him like this. You know when people have their pictures, they go like this. So yeah, no, it's exactly, I'm sure that's where they may be taken from. This was the most holy relic in Orthodox Christianity. So she's pointing like this to him, meaning that he's the savior of the world. So this happened on the 25th of May. 25th of May, they place this on the card. They believe that as long as they have this relic, Constantinople cannot be taken. So they want to take it to the different corners of the city. So they're taking it to the corner of the city and it falls off the cart. And this is Christian historians mentioning this. So they fall off the cart. They all panic. It takes them a very long time to pick it up. Eventually they pick it up. And, they, and, and then they take it further and then it begins to rain. So they have to cancel the procession. 25th of May. 26th of May, the Sophia Hagia is struck by lightning. So this really demoralizes them. On the other hand, Muhammad al-Fatih would go into the ranks of the Muslim disguised and to raise the morale, then he would take off his disguise and he would say to the Muslims, he said, don't you want to be that army? Which the Prophet said is the best of army. Then he would point to the grave of Abu Yubal Ansari anhu, and he would say, look at this old man, he came all the way from Medina. Is he not a source of inspiration for you? I often say, subhanAllah, look at the Sahaba radiallahu anhu. Even from the grave they inspired. Even from the grave the, the Sahaba radiallahu inspired. Now there was one problem that the Muslims had. What was that problem? The problem that was that you had 12 miles of wall around Constantinople. Four miles was land, so they were attacking from the land, but eight miles was sea. But the only way that you could reach the sea was that you had to go through this narrow, narrow passage called the Golden Horn. Now what the Christians had done is that when you take your ship through this narrow passage, they had chain there. So when their ships would go past, they would lower the chains and the ships would go past. When the Muslim would try to go through, they would pull the chain and the chain would cut through the hull of the ship and sink the ship. So Muhammad al-Fatih had to get around this, subhanAllah. So here Muhammad al-Fatih pulls up one of the most amazing 
military movements ever recorded in the history of humanity. Under the nose of the enemy in one night, Muhammad al-Fatih cradled 67 ship out of the sea. He took 67 ship in one night whilst the enemy were trying spying and then he had these logs which they're greased with animal fat and he took them for miles over land and it wasn't flat land some of the land was 200 feet high he had it pulled with oxes and, and human beings the next morning the Christians wake up, people of Constantinople wake up and in their backyard they have 67 ships. Subhanallah. The Christian historians say about this, they say by doing this Muhammad al-Fatih exceeded Alexander the Great. Others said that Muhammad al-Fatih, by doing this Muhammad al-Fatih had made the mountains his waves. And now Muhammad al-Fatih sends a message to the Muslims. He says, listen, tomorrow light three camps. So each, each, each group of people light three camps. So they think that we've had reinforcements. And then he sends a message to Caesar. And he says, give the city up. So the Caesar says, you know, we can't do that. We will fight to the end. So Muhammad al-Fatih says his famous words. He says, either the city or my grave. And then the next morning, the Muslims attack. 29 Muslims manage to scale the walls. One erects the flag and eventually the city falls. And then Muhammad al-Fatih that afternoon, he enters, but he is not the first one to enter. Muhammad al-Fatih is behind and his teacher, Aq Shamsuddin rahimahullah, is in front. And he enters the city, he's making dua for the shohada, and then Muhammad al-Fatih reaches the center of the city. And subhanallah, there Muhammad al-Fatih rahimahullah gathers his army. And he says to them, remember the words. This talk is not in Glasgow. Imagine this is Constantinople. You've just conquered Constantinople. And he says, remember the words of the Prophet You will surely conquer Constantinople. And the best army is you. And then Muhammad al-Fatih, he goes to the Sophia Hagia. They're having a mass. He goes to the Sajda Shukr. Thanks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He takes some dust and he pours it over his head. And they finish this, the, the mass. They come out of the mass and then the adhan is given. And the Sophia Hagia is turned into a, a masjid. Now some people say, you know what? That's a bit rough, isn't it? You know, turning the church into a mosque. Firstly, let me mention two things here. Firstly, Muhammad al-Fatih is on record. Salim Rashidi mentioned in his book that Muhammad al-Fatih said that I would love that next to every masjid we have a church. So for the Christian, they can go to the church and the Muslim can go to the masjid. Also on this occasion, Muhammad al-Fatih, when some guys came to him who were a bit more milly and they said, let us kill him. Muhammad al-Fatih said, this is not the teachings of the Quran. So here you have Istanbul. On the other side, end of the Mediterranean, you have what? You have Spain, Andalus. 800 years the Muslims ruled. The largest masjid, according to many historians, was the Qurtaba Masjid. According to many historians, 
it was the largest masjid, bigger than the Haramain in the Mecca and Medina. Every single masjid in East, in Andalus was turned into a church. Every single masjid. Every single Muslim, there was a time that the vast majority of Andalus were Muslims. Western historians write this, by a, th a thousand Christian areas, seven, eleven Muslims uh, reached Andalus by a thousand. In 300 years, the majority of people in Portugal and in Spain were Muslims. Then a day came, imagine this, there was not one Muslim left. Not one masjid left. Not one. So Muhammad the Sultan, so what happened in Europe? So subhanAllah, so Europe now erupts. What happens? The Pope collects a special tax just to fight Muhammad al-Fatih. Special tax just to fight Muhammad al-Fatih. Others, Philip the Fair, when he heard, he began to cry. Christian or Norway, he said that this is the beast. You know the Bible speaks about the beast out of the sea. He said this is the beast out of the sea. So they're all gathering to fight Muhammad al-Fatih. But Muhammad al-Fatih is Muhammad al-Fatih. You know, if it was you and me, we would have said, Yar, game over. Hadith, Musnad Ahmad. The best Amir is the Amir who conquers Constantinople. Let me chill now for the rest of my life. No, Muhammad al-Fatih. Muhammad al-Fatih kept them on their back foot. They say Muhammad al-Fatih opened one door, closed one door. What door did he close? He closed the door for Europe to attack the Muslim world. Because you had to go past Constantinople. He closed the door, but he opened another door. And that door was to attack Europe. So let me tell you about Muhammad al-Fatih. Listen. So he takes Constantinople. And then Muhammad al-Fatih doesn't stop there. So 1453, he takes Constantinople. 1459, he takes Serbia. Maria, 1460. Black Sea, 1461. Valencia, 1462. Who came from Valencia? Who can tell me? Some famous individual. Yeah, you know what? You know, down south in, in England, they say, Yeah, you know, Glasgow, pretty little. They say, they say, oh, you know, Sherry is up there. You know, they're well, they're well educated bunch there. They say, they're educated bunch. Every time I've asked this in England, somebody's always answered. Dracula. Not what you watch on TV, yaar. Proper one. The real McCoy. The real deal. There was only true two real Dracula catches in the history of humanity. One was Radu. Radu was Dracula's brother. He was a Muslim. And the second was Muhammad al-Fatih. You know, Dracula was also known as the Impaler. Dracula says in one place that he killed, he beheaded 23,884 uh, Turks and people from Bulgaria. He was known as the Impaler. So when Muhammad al-Fatih eventually went to fight him, Muhammad al-Fatih went through this forest. You know what impaling means? Impaling means when they put you on a stake from your rear end and the stake comes out the other end. He said that Muhammad al-Fatih went eventually to kill him 
final battle, he went through a forest in the entire forest had Muslims impaled by Dracula. Oh, Muhammad al-Fatih. Bosnia, 1463. Kaman, 1473. Albania, 1478. You know, in 1481, Muhammad al-Fatih reached Italy. The Pope was going to leave Rome. Muhammad al-Fatih sent a message. He is the only leader I know, maybe others did, who gave the Pope dawah towards Islam. So 1481, the Pope is now thinking about leaving Rome. They reach Italy and the news comes that Muhammad al-Fatih has passed away. 1492, that's when Spain fell eventually. They say if Muhammad al-Fatih had lived on Spain, would have never fell. 1481, he passed away. 1492, that's when Spain, finally Granada fell. You know... The momentum that Muhammad al-Fatih created in Europe, it took Europe 200 years to push it back. In the Muslim world, you know what Muhammad al-Fatih was known as? Abu al-Khayrat. You know, they say Usman. Usman had a dream. The son of Urtagal had a dream. That one day he's lying down and a heart of a pious person is transferred into his heart and then from his stomach from his belly button a tree grows and it covers the entire world and people are living in prosperity he had the ta'bir and the interpretation done of this and they said that from your progeny people will come who will bring peace and tranquility and prosperity in the world they say the greatest manifestation of that was Muhammad al-Fatih the greatest manifestation out of the Ottomans was Muhammad al-Fatih. He was known as Abu al-Khayrat, the father of all good. But wallahi, this is amazing virtue. The next one is just a jeep. And if he had no other virtue besides this virtue, it would have sufficed. This ummah has had millions of conquerors. Millions. But when you say al-Fatih, the conqueror, only one man comes to mind. Only one man. When you say the conqueror, it is Muhammad al-Fatih. When you say the conqueror of al-Quds, Salahuddin comes to mind. When you say al-Fatih, the conqueror, alif lam lil ghalaba, it is only Muhammad al-Fatih. Shall I give you another glad tiding? Imagine this. Zakaria is an alayhi salatu salam, the old man. Old man, his wife is old. And the angels come to Zakaria alayhi salatu salam and they say, Oh Zakaria, inna no bashiruka bi ghulamin. Oh Zakaria, we're gonna give you glad tidings. Allah has sent us to give you glad tidings that you will have a child and his name will be Yahya. Can you imagine how happy Zakaria alayhi salatu salam must have been when the angels came to him and gave him glad tidings from Allah that he would have a child? Can you, can you imagine how happy Yahya would have been? Yahya grew up and they would say, Yahya, you know you, Yahya. Allah sent angels to give glad tidings that you would be born. Wallahi. If Yahya had the right to be proud and happy that Allah sent angels, 
then wallahi Muhammad al-Fatih had the greater right to be happy because of the greatest of creation sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said la tuftahanna al-qustuntaniyya fala ni'mal amir amiruha that you will surely conquer Constantinople and the man who conquers it will be the best of men the best of leaders rahmatullah alayhi may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevate the status of Muhammad al-Fatih May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create a million Muhammad Fatihs in this ummah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring our hearts together as an ummah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow people like Muhammad al-Fatih to inspire us. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keep us united in dunya and reunite us in Jannah for those. Barakallah, Jazakumullah khairan for Al-Falah, Mulana, etc. for organizing the event. Hayya ala al-Falah.